jump right back into this. Uh, so, as you were saying there, Alex, leaving off, that um, you wanted to think about the shift, transition from the classic to the modern. Unless you want, wait, you had another question. Oh, whatever you want to do. Uh, yeah, I have a, I have a f several questions, but we maybe we'll get to those at the end. Uh, and trace, like, some of the history that Foucault lines uh, before, we do, before we get to the questions, maybe. Foucault does history? Yeah, that's my question. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the transition from the classical to the modern episteme that uh, Foucault uh, charts. So he says on page two thirty eight, quote, representation had lost or has lost its power to provide a foundation. Um, so why? Um, <laughs> this is like one of the questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think part of the answer is, uh, again, one of those people that I think Foucault focuses on because they're a border figure for him between uh, two epistemes. So he talks about the Marquis de Sade, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. He says on page uh, 211, quote, after him, uh, Sade, uh, violence, life and death, desire and sexuality will extend below the level of representation. An immense expanse of shade which are now, we are now attempting to recover as far as we can in our discourse, in our freedom, in our thought. But our thought is so brief, our freedom so enslaved, our discourse so repetitive, that we must face the fact that that expanse of shade below really is a bottomless sea." End quote. So for him, there was a shift in, in which representation was revealed to be insufficient to describe everything. So we really can't have a uh, transparent language in which we simply like represent a thing with an arbitrary signifier and just like describe the whole world that way. There are things that will escape representation always. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. And the, the reason that it makes sense to me is that I, I, you know, I think about discourses pertaining to value or wealth in the early 20th century and how there was, you know, in the move away from any sort of reference to real things where culture, where um, pecuniary decency or class started to derive its meaning, not necessarily by anything tangible or real, but precisely by uh, you know, the relationship of signs to their signs, if you will, or of, you know, the rather arbitrary um, association of some things right. with, with certain prestige or class yeah. or whatever. Yeah, he talks about uh, precious metals in particular, right, as the not valuable in themselves, but valuable right. as yeah. pure signifiers yeah. of so value. Their weight in gold or whatever when he, yeah. Right. But that, okay, I don't know, are you ready to talk about the what the analysis of wealth yet, or should we stick, should we go to grammar first, or, or anything uh, else first? We can talk about those if you want to. I don't, I feel like I don't have much to say about those. I am, okay, then I, then I just have a question for okay. you. Okay, uh -huh. 
what is it, and this is, I think, really broad, what is it about, and like I have an idea, but I'm curious to see what you might say, what is the difference for Foucault between Marx and Adam Smith? Like, where does he say, you know what, I don't want to do Marx here, I'm more interested in Adam Smith. Right. Uh, or Ricardo. Yeah, or yeah. Um, you mean, why does he focus on, like, Adam Smith and Ricardo in the history that he gives rather than, like, Marx? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. It, it's not so simple as he just, like, disavows Marx. Like, he condemns Marx. No, he, but, but... It's like, Marx is useless today, right? There's nothing right. we can get out of Marx. But Marx would be for Foucault in the modern episteme, or episteme. And I think he's, like... Uh, he's less interested in in uh, articulating that history, right? Like, sure. I think I think he wants to articulate the history of the discourses in the classical age and how they shifted um, or moved from how we moved from the classical to modern epi- um, episteme. But I don't know. He's not. He's not particularly diligent or interested in describing the modern discourses. No, right? Because he, he just blows past them. Right. right. And I'm one of the. I'm curious as to why that is. Because these discourses really have an effect. And like even at his time, right? Like if we were to use Marxism as an right. example, like we think of. When was this written? 68? Like, this, yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure that this was 68. Or late 60s, nevertheless. 67? Could, yeah. 67? Uh, when's the original French? You know, there was the a lot of the stuff going on. 66. In, 66? With the, with the French, yeah. Well, nevertheless, there were, there were a lot of the, there was a lot of stuff going on. 68 was on the horizon. Yeah, 68 was on the horizon. Like, it was, it was certainly coming, right? And for him to say this of Marx... Marxism exists in the 19th century thought like a fish in water. That is, it is unable to breathe anywhere else. Right. Like, it was more than a disavowal, like, oh, I'm not interested. Like, right, that's right, That's a flat-out condemnation. Yeah, like but, but I think he's uh, interested in Marxism in this context in that it's thoroughly historical. Right? It's a fish in water in the modern episteme in that it's Thoroughly historical, so it could only exist in the episteme that's also thoroughly historical. So how do you... Right. Could you... Yeah, this is what you said before we started. Like, how do you... You want to think about this new episteme, or what's going on? (laughs) We won't have to get into that. But that's interesting. And then, okay. I, I don't know. I'm not sure that's a sufficient answer. I... I... Like, if I... I don't want to press you on it, so... we can oh, just can. Like, yeah. Like, he doesn't have to be interested in it, because he can be interested in whatever he wants to be interested in, but it seems like... Almost like a glaring... Omission. Yeah, especially because he's so... He spends so much time on Adam Smith and Ricardo, where he's like... Right. But, but I mean, as far as method goes... So then, then we have the physiocrats, right? Yeah. On the other side, or whatever. We, somewhere in there... Thinking about the physiocrats and that kind of relationship to land, which to me, you know, I, I think of a representation in that way. There's that very utilitarian type 
uh, association where you have wealth or value or whatever derives directly from the from the soil mm-hmm. from your, your toil the sweat yeah. of your brow or whatever um, which I think serves an interesting uh, cultural function if we were to think about representation and the role that it plays it would play like in relation to representation not to say that it was it necessarily has that affiliation but I just like just transposing his discourse around language and language or the signifier and the signified or the referent and then the physiocrats relationship or the relation that they kind of illustrate between wealth or value or whatever and the land like a very what we take to be you know the ultimate referent that thing that doesn't change just the soil right, right. exists everywhere type thing and I just found it interesting in that way. And then I would... So, you know, I, I feel like that was just a big digression. But I will ask this. Okay, what is it about then Adam Smith that he's interested in? Oh, now you're, you're challenging me. Um, just to like... Keep... I would say I don't know that section well enough. Um, like, how is Adam Smith a paragon of representation? Right? Yeah. Because he says that, he says this. He said, just as Smith had used the constant value, so this is just as Smith had used the constant value of labor to establish the natural price of things that is in the, in the play of equivalences, and just as Ricardo freed labor from its role as a measure in order to introduce it prior to all exchange into the general forms of production, so Cuvier, another figure, freed the subordination of characters from its taxonomic function in order to introduce it, prior to any classification that might occur, into the inver- into the various organic structural plans of living beings. So that, then we think of that other shift, right? Right. Like with Cuvier, like into, from the tax... Yeah, it's... Taxo- taxonomia, but... Ta- taxonomia, tax... Taxonomia? Taxonomia, Jesus. Maybe, yeah. Um, um, it, it sounds like in that particular quote, he's pointing to a process of making the sign arbitrary in, like, those multiple works. Yeah. Right? In in a way that, like, moves them into the um, uh, episteme of representation. Yeah. Right? So, like, what was the first bit about Adam Smith? Uh, if you uh, still have it there? Yeah, I still have it here. So, um, I just jump back a little bit, because this is, like, not totally about him, but he says it about Cuvier. In this, sorry, not about Cuvier. This is the quote. In his project for establishing a classification that would be as faithful as a method and as strict as a system, Jussieu had discovered the rule of the subordination of characters, just as Smith had used the constant value of labor to establish the natural price of things in the play of equivalences, and just as Ricardo freed labor from its role uh, as a measure in order to introduce it prior to all exchange into the general forms of production, so Cuvier freed the subordination of characters from its taxonomic function in order to introduce it prior to any classification that might occur into the various organic structural plans of living beings. So like the, uh, all these kind of um, streamlined kind of uh, the ways in which these new discourses came into being or how these, these shifts occurred or the kind of figureheads, which is ironic to kind of to, to right. think of it in those terms, especially yeah. like yeah. we don't want to give it that 
a single point, right? As they're right. a locus. But I'm because for Smith, there's no there's no like end per se, right? We think of the Wealth of Nations, which right. I haven't read, but I've read it years ago, so I don't remember. Very really? Well. Yeah. Parts, yeah. Well, parts of it at least. I don't know. But I I read a distinction there between him and or between Smith and Marx, precisely because Smith, in a sense, foresaw. And not not deliberately, he was not conscious of this, but foresaw what would come to be the condition of language in whatever age would we would consider to be the one where language just proliferates, where language where the sign is arbitrary or whatever, where there's simply age. just the classical age, right? So. God, this is, this is so complicated. <laughs> Why do you make me read this? No, I love it. It's good. So, so can I change tack, tack a little bit? Yeah, I, I wish you would. Uh, I'm going to bring up one of the, the big questions that we were talking about before we started recording. Um, when I read Foucault uh, more and more, like in working on my thesis, I, I consistently ask myself, like, why is Foucault still valuable? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure his histories of specific things are the answer. Yeah. Right? So, in reading his early stuff, so, like, uh, this, The Order of Things, um, Birth of the Clinic, and History of Madness, I have been reading them with an eye to, like, his overall methodology and his methodological, or, like, what he wants his methodology to achieve. So the reason I say, like, I don't know that, that section very well about the economics part is because, like, I read them, but I'm less interested in the specific things that he's reading into these texts Yeah. Uh, than, like, what, what he's trying to do with them. That's fair, yeah. And um, the sense that I get is that some of the specific histories that he has uh, drawn... And the connections he's made have been challenged by a lot of other intellectual historians, not just based on Foucault's intentions, but also just like he got the history wrong. Or, or not I've heard some wrong, like but like his interpretation doesn't hold up if you examine other stuff, right? Like there's the concern in this text in particular that he relies on specific. Uh, specific texts, specific authors, and, like, does that really represent a whole discourse? Yeah. Yeah. And, and does the collection of three different discourses represent a whole episteme? Yeah. He says specifically at the beginning, uh, there are other, like, more scientific discourses in each of these epistemes that he could talk about, but it's the the ones that exist in the gray areas of science are like are more like squishy um rather than like hard science that interest him and get less um discussion right like by secondary type stuff like by people who yeah by like intellectual historians right right like it's easy um it's i think for foucault he thinks it's 
easier or like more glamorous to do like a history of physics, mm-hmm. right? And it's the like these softer like what he calls like the sciences of man that get less airtime, but have been no less significant for Foucault. Yeah, I mean they've led for him they've led to the development of that of man um, as a as a concept um, as a uh, object of science. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so I mean I, that's just my uh, excuse for not knowing. No, like, that's, that's his good. analysis of particular figures. Uh, yeah, I'm just not convinced. The sci- the histories that he traces are the where the value still lies in Foucault. So what what do you propose in as like an alternative? Like where do you how do you how do you read like this text? Then. Yeah, so I think the, I think the value, I mean, I, I feel uh, bad using that term, but uh, I think what's useful and interesting is the way he talks about power, and part of that is um, the creation of subjectivities, right? So he does this, this is the, like, he shifts this more in his later work, right? But, um that is what this project is trying to do in part, right? Is to trace how we came to an idea of man or humanity, mankind, as a possible uh, object of science, right? Um, yeah. And all the, the power relations and the way discourse works that um, not only conditioned but um, affect those modes of, those uh, processes of subjectification in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting because like, if we can we let we were kind of alluding to this earlier, but can we let Foucault off the hook? And I wonder to what extent, like, we might get that, we might be able to get those types of analyses out of him, right? We might be able to uh, find something useful. Like, there's certainly a lot yeah, useful. I, I want to be clear, I don't think they're useless. No, 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 yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. But just, like, I'm not sure, like, like I said, like, that's not my focus when I read Foucault. Right, but I mean, those things that we do find useful, however, to get, like, kind of polemical about this... To what extent are they in themselves things that we should be suspicious of? And the way the, how I was thinking about this is Foucault's use or thinking about language, specifically languages. So the question I wrote verbatim is: Does Foucault's disavowal of the plethora of languages prior to the consolidation of the main languages? Tell us something about his own complicity in the hegemony of these kind of like broad categorizations or whatever. And the uh, example that I'd give when thinking about this is that it's, it's France. So France, there's a book on my shelf there, it's called The Discovery of France, where the guy kind of lays out um, how prior to uh, the consolidation of French as like an, a language, yeah. there, there were like... Hundreds of Occitane or Occitane or in yeah. the south of France. Yeah. Right, exactly. Brittany, like from Normandy. And, 
you can get that in India now currently, right? right? Like, right. I think India recognizes yeah, Foucault talks 14. about the sun, right? In, in here? Like, no. Cause he, he, no, I'm thinking of someone else. I forget who. I was reading about this not too long ago. I forget who it was. But, like, India recognizes, like, 14 languages. Right. Like, I think, like, official languages. And, and that doesn't even account for, like reading you know, from... Yeah, exactly. From town to town. Like, I... The, Speaking to a guy that said like you you can't understand like my neighbors upstairs here they they uh they don't they can't communicate to people that are in the next town like they they just it's just another language so Foucault's I guess trace of the of these kind of broad languages in a sense it's not as though he he needed to necessarily talk about all the languages like that's impossible but it seems as though there's it's just missing, like, to, to at least mention, like, hey, my talking about these languages now came about, at least, the, like, when he speaks about French or English or, or whatever, came about through a process of homogenization, in a sense, yeah. where, where, like that guy says, when France became Paris, right? Right, right, right. Uh, or Paris became France or whatever. So, in that way, you know, we think of Foucault as the thinker of history or what, or the thinker of subjects, thinker of subjectivity, thinker of power. To what extent does his reliance on these already formulated, I guess, meta-discourse languages, these, these things, in a sense, prom- like, um, kind of mirror those same structural right. problems? Yeah, no, I think he would agree. <laughs> Yeah, and he does, like I don't he, think he would. I think he would say it would be impossible for anyone to escape yeah. the power dynamics in which they have become a subject. And he says in like the the uh, the uh, history of the section second volume of the history of sexuality. He says like, yeah, you know, I'm just gonna write about the Greeks here, but we have like what twenty texts from the Greeks, like maximum. <laughs> This should not represent the whole, but I'm gonna. This is what. This is all we got. Yeah, like I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm gonna do what I can here, and he, and that that's really what I like about him. It was, uh, it was Simone Veil that I was trying to remember who. Uh, Simone Veil. Yeah, she writes about the, the like original violence required to like create the nation of France, like the subject, uh, subjugation of the south. Uh, and by the north, mm-hmm. that type of thing, and and yeah, and like the uh, centralization in Paris. Yeah, exactly. And like I so said, you, so you think he needs to acknowledge that? Because he needs to acknowledge that. It's an impossible task, right? And it, like, like that just seems like one particular way in which he is implicated in the power relations, or like. Yeah, no, there are other ways, and we can yeah. get no, into that, so I, and it, I think, it's a little bit petty. Right, no, I think he acknowledges it in various places, but, like, it's almost a moot point for him, because, like, you can't help the conditions in which you come to be. Yeah, well, that, yeah, and that's, he wishes he could just kind of open up a new discourse, or, no, he, he but it's ironic in the end of the archaeology of knowledge, he's like, he wishes he could just be dropped into like some discourse or whatever when he's talking about this stuff at the same time. In the end of the, the lecture yes. in the discourse on language or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like at, he just wishes at the he beginning? Could be dropped in or whatever. Again, like I'm not 
I'm not certain how to read that because I think his point is such a hope is also always moot because you can't ever begin a discourse new, right? Like like yeah. we were saying in the last in the last um, section on this, where like the author doesn't ever radically begin a new discourse. Yeah. As like, you know, from nothing. Yeah. Right. So it's the hope to begin a new discourse is uh, always impossible. Yeah, and from uh, I mean, I, I think we're getting away from the text a little bit, but uh, that's fine. It's just also the the hope that you could just like slip, like he says, like slip into discourse imperceptibly. Like that's also a foreclosed possibility for Foucault because um, despite that hope, uh, like the cultural institutions, uh, he thinks they still like require the author as like the figurehead of a discourse, right? Or like um, to stand in as the originator of a discourse when in actuality they're just a figurehead, right? So, like, we can talk about, like, Foucauldian discourse, and, like, Foucault is the person who began that type of discourse, but I think he would say, like, he's only, yeah, like, a, a figurehead of it. Or his, his discourse did not just come about through sheer force of will. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it was, there were conditions that allowed it to come to be when it did. Yeah, like, conditions that allowed for it, right? Because if it didn't allow for it... But then again, there's that kind of that's subtle the, Hegelianism... Yeah, that's the creepy determinism, right? ...seeping through, and it's like, right. what, what do you do then? Right. Um, Why don't we uh, drop that for the minute? Oh, yeah. And, uh... Let's yeah, see going what else I have to say. One. Yeah, no, this is what I've been... Uh, grappling with the last few weeks um what do you um, if I can yeah press you on it a little more um, yeah, yeah. what are you what are you doing with that specifically well like, what, what, what limitations do you see in Foucault well like I said like so some of the secondary stuff one there's one person in particular that I uh, found who was like uh Foucault wanted to figure out how he could write about discourse from outside of discourse. And I was like, no, he didn't. Like, he distinctly says, you can't do that. Like, in, I think, many different ways. And, like, the discourse on language is one particular spot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was kind of, like, writing against that in particular. So the thing, the thing that I'm uh, struggling with, like, trying to, like, formulate coherent thoughts about is... Um, if the cultural institutions, the episteme, um, condition what discourses come into being and defang them before they even come to be, or like only let discourses that are sanitized and not dangerous to the existing order, then how does anything change and what potential for change or like radical disruption is there? So, like, 
turning that back on Foucault himself. Like, how is his discourse new or innovative or uh, radical in any way? Like, how can he hope that his discourse would change the power structures that he's talking about? Right? Because yeah. those power structures yeah, have conditioned his own discourse and allowed his own discourse to come to be. Yeah. Right? And he is he specifically says, like Yeah. That must mean his his discourse is not dangerous. Right? So how do we make how does Foucault make discourse dangerous again? Or how do we make discourse dangerous again? What what when was it dangerous though? Uh good question. I don't know. He so he doesn't I don't think he answers that particularly, but he talks like in some general terms about the like totalizing um, tendency of modern discourse and like the modern episteme. Uh, so I think he sees the modern episteme as particularly uh, defensive and. Uh, hostile to like any other type of any discourse that's like not um it doesn't condition itself because so, right? i how do we the transition from one age to another so this is i don't mean to interrupt but this is what i thought you were going to bring up earlier okay is another like uh common critique of foucault is like he doesn't give an answer of why or how we transition from one episteme to another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So, some um, people, like, bring up the comparison between this and Thomas Kuhn, right? On the, um, what is it? On the history of scientific revolutions? Is it history? Yeah, you tell me. I, I would, right? I would Which butcher like, it. Uh, on the, yeah, maybe it's history. I don't remember the title exactly. But, um... Where he he charts um, like different scientific paradigms, right, and the shifts from one paradigm to another. So people draw that comparison with the order of things sometimes, right? And like, oh, Foucault's like talking about paradigms, um, but yeah, he doesn't really give a satisfactory answer for change, right? And this is the same problem that I was just talking about that I was struggling with, right? Is like. If there's such a control over discourse by the prevailing episteme or the cultural institutions, how does anything change? Yeah. I mean... Because then we'd have to... We would inevitably... Because he, he, he seems to think as though there's a, that there's a, something new going on. A new form of, like, uh, control... Like in the form, in the you know, just in the, if we think of the shift from order to history, history is much more malicious precisely because it's it's so much more difficult to get out of just because it's been naturalized to such an extreme extent. Yeah, I don't know about that. How, I, again, like I think you could apply the same argument to the end of the um, classical episteme and say like order is so hard to escape. Like the the world and the cosmos are naturally ordered. Like, how do we think past that? Right. But, like, so, it happened. <laughs> so there's something else going on. Or well, there will be something else going on, right? If we were to be, like, like what would that new space look like? It, who's to say we're not already in it? Like, Right. So I think 
again, like this is this is me speculating a little bit, but I think Foucault's own work, he already thinks he is on the cusp of another episteme. Right. I don't know if I don't I wouldn't go so far as to say that he positions himself as another Cervantes or Marquis de Sade who like gestures towards the new ep, um, episteme, but I think he realizes or believes that he is at the end of the modern episteme. Right. And this there there's a passage here that I think kind of captures that, at least like mm-hmm. the uh, polemical kind of style that he that he mobilized at specific moments against what was going on like today. It's on page 373. He says, To all those who still wish to talk about man, about his reign or his liberation, to all those who still ask themselves questions about what man is in his essence, to all, to all those who wish to take him as their starting point in their attempts to reach the truth, to all those who, on the other hand, refer all knowledge back to the truths of man himself to all those who refuse to formalize <laughs> without reading it out loud is like, to, to all those who refuse to formalize without anthropologizing who refuse to mythologize without demystifying who refuse to think about immediately without immediately thinking that it is man who is thinking to all these warped and twisted forms of reflection we can answer only with a philosophical laugh which means to a certain extent a silent one. Now, okay, this is what, if we are in this, this, whatever age we can consider, consider ourselves in now, or the one that he was writing in, like whether right. he had moved into a new one or whatever. Well, he does say at one point that um, the modern uh, episteme still grounds contemporary discourse. Okay. When he was writing. Yeah. He's, he makes that claim. Then, okay, See, and then when he has this passage and he's he's laying out, I guess the the existence of these kind of oppositionary forces to the thing he's trying to what it seems like move into, like the the kind of thinking he wishes right. would become like commonplace or manifest, like these these figures these people were like, you know I'll just point reactionary. To this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What place do they serve without necessarily like? Hegel really fucked this up, because Hegel, we could just be like, oh, it's part of it. But it seems to me, without pointing to Hegel for myself, you could do it if you want. But, <laughs> but, like, this attests to something of a shift. Right. Or at least, e- even if Foucault is leaving those people behind, or, or that in itself represents a whole different process than what he's necessarily trying to do. And, like, methodologically, then, we could say that Perhaps he was successful at doing that, but in but perhaps this whole move, like this kind of bifurcation between, you know, those who are whatever do to be as vulgar as I can about it, those doing it right and those doing it wrong, <laughs> like is another part of the the system that kind of binary one zero thing that perhaps a, a trap that Foucault fell into. Okay, there's there's a couple there's like three things I want to say I think. Um, Don't lose them. Uh, the first one is, and this is in I think the order of things, but it's also very clear in the introduction. Well, very clear is hard to say. <laughs> I think it's clear in the introduction to the archaeology of knowledge, which I keep going back to because no, that's good. It's good. He says he wants to escape anthropology. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and like the yeah. anthropological chains of thought. Mm-hmm. So I. 
that quote that you read, that's how I read that quote, right? Which is those um, like traditional thinkers who are stuck in the modern episteme, episteme um, still rely on man as the basis of thought in reality. Yeah. Um, and he really wants to move away from that. The, the second thing I want to say is um, one thing I consistently like, remind myself is that uh, when Foucault shows that something's historical, that we had previously assumed to be ahistorical, uh, in this case, mankind, humanity, yeah. that means two things. It wasn't always like it was. Like, it, it wasn't always... Like, it didn't always exist. Yeah. And since it's historical, it could cease to exist. Right. Right? So, in pointing out that man is historical, he's also implying that, well, he says it explicitly at one point, uh, mankind's a recent invention and perhaps one nearing its end. Yeah. Right? So, if in the modern episteme we're in the episteme of history and of anthropology, i.e. of an idea of humanity, uh, Foucault wants to move past both of those restraints. Yeah. And so uh, the same operation, I think, this is the third thing that I want to say, the same operation is at work in the idea of the historical episteme where... Uh, Foucault makes history itself historical, right? So, yeah. in the yeah. classical episteme, yeah. history was not, didn't have the hegemony that it does in the modern episteme, yeah. right? But that, again, that implies we can move to an episteme that's not historical, i.e. history can end if we want to be hyperbolic about it. Um, so, man, both... Man himself becomes historical, and history becomes historical. Do you think that it would be safe to say, because we think of uh, Foucault as the thinker of like subjectivity, or like that kind of coming into being, yeah. that there is a connection between this formulation of man or the human or whatever, and subjectivity? Yeah, um, in that mankind is taken as the... Like the basis of subjectivity, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. all again, this is I think all in like the introduction to the archaeology of knowledge, right? Yeah. Like uh, he talks about like mankind is like the last bastion of subjectivity. Yeah. And uh, another way that he expresses this is um, like the need to decenter that last remaining center. Um, and the last remaining center is like humanity as or man as the the center of all thought, or like yeah. the basis of all subjectivity. Now, the, what I want to ask is, can that can that derive from man? Like, can you um, decenter humanity from a point of like subjectivity right because if we think by humanity if we see a relationship <laughs> right. between so, man and subject and Foucault the only way he can speak about that is by emulating both of those kind of embodying yeah that, 
then how do we how do we know what he's saying is it's another t- systemic trap right it, and i mean yeah yes <laughs> how do you how do you subvert discourse from within discourse yeah cuz he he was the he was the thinker of like no identity right like didn't he shave his eyebrows right. and he was bald and he like didn't want to he, and you know, and what you quoted before, right? Like, don't ask me to remain the same. Yeah. Like, don't ask me who I am, don't ask me to remain the same, right? So, I think he definitely tries to, like, disavow any stable subjectivity that people um, imprint upon him. Yeah. And that this, okay, and this, I feel like a lot of people, or many people, really bastardize Foucault. Because, you know, they, they take, what what do they take from Foucault? They take the panopticon, right. they take sexuality, yeah. and then they take uh, madness, right? And, right. They, and they, they, they leave the rest I mean, the yeah, the archaeology of knowledge is not popular. <laughs> no, no, no. And it's not like it, they need, anyone needs to take that no, out. No, no. But it's, those are the, th- and those things aren't easily digestible, but those yeah. are moments that don't call into question the use of Foucault, right? Because I think that Foucault was very much aware of it. Like, and like you yeah, said, yeah. I think that if you were sitting here, you'd be like, yeah, you idiots. Like, this is <laughs> obviously... So, again, like, a reason... Um, I really like that quote about his texts being explosive or, like, fireworks or uh, self-destructing upon use is, like, that's... Uh, not only his text, but, like, that's part of his own, uh, I don't like using this word, but identity, right? Or, like, that's what yeah, he yeah, hopes, sure. right? Yeah. Like, that same type of, um, impermanence, right? So, um, like, one question I've had is, like, is, that's Foucault's, that's part of Foucault's answer of, how to subvert discourse or the episteme that you're in from within. Yeah. Right? Is like, you blow it up. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you try to blow it up uh, from within. Um, and I think there's, there's nothing saying that he was successful. Or I should rephrase that. There's nothing guaranteeing that he was successful. Yeah. Like, I think he, di- he died too young. He still had another twenty years of writing to match the other French French mm-hmm. guys who wrote way too long. But I'm gonna you, Derrida. <laughs> yeah, Derrida just kept going. Baudrillard lasted the longest, I think. Did oh he? wait, no, Virilio's still alive though, so he's still around. If he's Derrida still... made a big thing about being the last of the '60s generation, right? Yeah, he wrote a he wrote a text that was just well, he wrote someone compiled a collection of eulogies that he had written. Right? One about Foucault. Right. Um, and this, Deleuze was dead in the early Yeah, I mean, I think he opens it with, like, uh, talking about Proust and, like, mm. walking through the cemeteries, right? Yeah. So, there's a, po- there's a point on page 364 when he says something interesting about, about origins that, you know, I, I think it speaks to a certain cultural logic and it, uh, I'll, I'll tie it back to this idea of subjectivity in a moment but he says that but, what, but whether this stratum of the original revealed by modern thought in the very moment 
movement in which it invented man is a promise of fulfillment and perfect plenitude or restores the void of the origin, the void created both by its recession and by its approach. In any case, what it prescribes as thought is something like the same. Through the domain of the original, which articulates human experience upon the time of nature and life, upon history, upon the sedimented past of cultures, modern thought makes it its task to return to man in his identity, in that plenitude, or in that nothing which he is himself, to history and time in the repetition which they render impossible, but which they force us to conceive into being in that which it is. <laughs> Drop the mic! <laughs> Uh, uh, right, but but I, I think uh, in that is a lot of like what we've already said, right? Like mankind as the origin of like everything, and yeah. and like a sense that like uh, mankind is a plentitude in itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but it. How do you then? How do you? Because this is so. This is where I'm. I get. It's so hard for me because how do you conceptualize? anything coming into being because I can only possibly think about that very process through the you know the order in which I am found right whatever you consider the episteme the epistemic conditions of my own existence I can't think of that process of anything coming into being whether it be Las Meninas or whatever without thinking of a certain subjectivity or a certain kind of like right. a creator mankind or humankind right. whatever forcing that thing into being so you're asking about the episteme that we're in. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know if like my what, thinking that way. Is. What does an episteme post-subjectivity look like? Yeah, that's it. And there's, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of, like, post-human stuff. I don't know, man. we got to find out. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's... We'll know in a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, what is... Because at the same time, like... Like, uh, we think of Foucault as perhaps, a, like, a thinker that tried to emulate and embody a sort of post-subjectivity in a sense like he tried to mm -hmm. you know face that yeah, yeah. identity or whatever but at the same time like in this contemporary condition or we think like Baudelaire right like the Flaneau yeah. or whatever like the the alienation in like the the city like yeah there was no I think in the case of Baudelaire like there's no like subjectivity right you're 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 kind of stripped of your identity or like the yeah. stranger yeah we think of Kennedy. I mean, Baudelaire in particular talks about the crowd right and like the alienation yeah. you find in the crowd yeah and uh how like being part of the crowd strips you of subjectivity right yeah and you exactly. become like part of this larger being yeah but lo like lose w yourself in that lose your individual subjectivity yeah, exactly. And just being the case of, like, modernity in the case of, like, ben yeah. Benamine or something. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, so it's, like, it seems as though man, when he was writing this, Foucault was talking about something that had actually been effaced perhaps long ago. Yeah, I mean, like there's, the, a, there's a tradition of the idea of, like, effacing subjectivity in modernity, whether yeah. intentional or not. Yeah. Like, Foucault is intentional in... Like Baudelaire, it's not right. Yeah, like yeah, he's, yeah. He's writing against that effacement of individual subjectivity, right? As a, like a negative uh, trait of modernity. But to that, I would say because, like in the case of Baudelaire, there is a focus on like the um, individual experience, like one that hmm. affects everyone. 
like it seems as though there's such validity to that that I ask of Foucault like what are you saying that it hasn't already occurred right like this loss this dissipation of man or the human I, I why is this why do you think that saying this is anything novel. new yeah yeah I read Foucault as like in general just trying to point out that we could think and be otherwise. Right? And just like yeah. in a really general yeah, yeah, yeah. way, like yeah. writing against any um, claims that like this is how it's been and this is how it'll always be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So like that's what I was talking about earlier when I said like everything that he reveals as historical could also like cease to exist. Yep. Um just and like that in itself is one way that you push back or resist the um, epistemic hegemony that you're within or the cultural hegemony that you're within right is that um, that you show that things could be otherwise yeah right but but, but I mean to it's what a very, extent like, does that then serve the cultural logic of the time, because if we were properly Foucauldian about it, right? Yeah, like there's no what I was saying earlier. Yeah, because then on like the other side, the other front, like we think of Deleuze or whatever, like the, in the in that Deleuze and Guattari, there's like a very heavy emphasis on the possibility of like becoming, right? You know, possibility. Like you're not multiplicity. You're multiplicities. Like you're always in flux. You're always changing. You're always like trying to craft out little spaces for yourself to like be whatever yeah. you want to be. Yeah. But for Foucault, it's I think you'd be that. like, he's I, I much, don't He's think much so. more pessimistic. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like, like, what can you do? You can resist stable subjectivity. Yeah. You can write, te- I mean, he can, not, I mean, who can write texts like Foucault, but you can write texts that explode upon use in a attempt to subvert stable discourse or like stable epistemic conditions yeah that's about it well yeah he has a really great quote in i think it's in um it's in his outline i don't have it here outline of the genealogy of morality Genealogy of Ethics. It's an interview where he outlines this project, but he never actually got to do it. Um, But he says, uh, my point isn't that everything is bad, but that everything is dangerous. And if everything's dangerous, we always have something to do. So, I, again, like, I don't feel that's particularly satisfying, right? Like, we always have something to do. We always have to be cognizant of the way or like aware of the way that new discourses or existing discourses are dangerous yeah and the way that they create subjectivity um to their own ends but there's no grand revolutionary gestures no no and that's (laughs) you know that's one of his things, I, I would think against Marx, right? Trying to think of that right. in terms of there being the possibility of that kind of utopian ideal or whatever. But 
if there are these this possibility for if there is this possibility for resistance to what end does that serve right if if Foucault's discourse is conditioned by the existing epistemic conditions and he's inciting us to resist in whatever minor way that he outlines but if we were totally optimistic and we were to say like yeah resist stable subjectivity and you know write like yeah. texts that explode like yeah. and there and that served a certain resistive function then what then possibilities i guess the, yeah but who, and my my thing is that who is to say that is not already embedded in the conditions of whatever we find ourselves in. And this is where the right. Foucault of power comes in, thinking I, Foucault I, in terms of like there being these very strong oppressive mechanisms that keep things where they are. Yeah. But I wonder if that's oh, not just okay. another phase maybe, of history. Maybe this, gonna... is, maybe this will clarify things. Um, we're always in power relations for Foucault. Yeah. And, and this is, this, maybe this is bad because we're kind of getting outside of the text, but... We're always in power relations for Foucault. We can always resist power relations for Foucault. Mm-hmm. So, total, um, or like totalitarianism, I guess, is never complete. Yeah. So, there's always the potential for resistance, however meager. Uh, so, like what, what you were saying earlier, like, there's. Yeah, there's never going to be, like, total control in, in a way that individuals can't resist. Yeah. So, or, like, can't, can't do something. So what I, I was thinking was that perhaps there is no, perhaps there's no such thing as power, right? I don't want to get too Baudrillardian oh, no, about isn't. this. There isn't. He it's says that at some point. Like, he says that... I, I was trying to find that at one point. I was trying to remember where he said that, that power doesn't exist or that power is just... Uh, I could find a quote for you somewhere. <laughs> but, if we accept that, then what is the point in even analyzing this current episteme in this way? Like, if it's just an, another phase among other ones, we will inevitably move from it, right? If power doesn't exist. Right. So why resist power if we're going to change to a new... Um, yeah, if it's just going to move on anyways. anyways. Yeah. Right. Why not just wait it? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I wonder, in the other epistemes, right, like uh-huh. the... Were the were there Foucaults at that time? Like, right. I, it's kind of an odd question, but like, well, no, again, I would say like resistance, like, like, to what extent does Foucault, like I said, want to position himself as like another Marquis de Sade who's in between, yeah, Steens or, or Cervantes? Um, but your question's a good one. Like, yeah, why? why resist if, if change is going to happen anyways and we can't, like, do much to either stop it or hasten it. Yeah. I mean, there does seem to be... This is... A, I think this is a hard critique of Foucault to make, but there does seem to be a latent uh, morality there, right? Mm-hmm. So if you say something like, well, we want a more just society... 
right? So we need to resist um, unfair uh, manifestations of power. So like his work in the prison system, for yeah. example, right? Um, yeah. I don't see where that morality comes from for Foucault. Like just like, the wanting to do that, like just the desire. What to... what basis does he have for claiming that morality? Right, like like you could say like, yeah, no, I don't even. <laughs> yeah, but so the reason I say it's a hard hard critique of Foucault to make is because um, normative claims or like prescriptions for. Ch- for ethical change are very... You have to read them into Foucault's work. Yeah. Right? Or at least, like, his major texts um, rather than, like, his essays. That's how many people take it up, like, now, though. Like, they really... Right. Yeah. But you have to, you have to like, read between the lines, right? And, like, all these things are historical, so it could be otherwise, so we should make it otherwise, so we should make it more just. Yeah. Right? But you have to take the last two or three leaps there that I said, or the logical queens that I said, like, uh, in addition to what Foucault says. Right? Yeah. Like he kind of gets you there, and then you have to, like, insert your ethics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, there are moments in this, too, when this is, like, you know, Foucault was, was left as hell, right? Like he, yeah, yeah. But there's also, the, you know, some kind of, like, neoliberal type, like, sentiments, I think, kind of, like, strewn throughout his, his, his work in a sense like there there is that subtle emphasis on individualism or the or the one person's capability to um like in the example in madness you have to really get away from the text <laughs> he says of like the the man who claims to be made of glass yeah right he says that this this person is a not illogical, like he says that if you're right. made of glass or whatever, if you fall in a strict logic, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there, he is abiding by a certain systemic code, like to a T. And it's in it's in that way that I'm like, okay. To what extent is there like a very heavy uh, democratization of these sort of values that can be then you know reinserted into a system that very much relies on this kind of like you know, hyper-capitalistic type, like, you know, logic or whatever, where that doesn't see any boundaries, doesn't see any limits, Simon Bay or whatever, but just sees, like, total endless possibility. Right. Which I'm like, shit. And that's, for me, that's one of my critiques yeah. of Deleuze as well, where I'm like, I get a little bit weary when it's like we start to think about... So, like, like, how do we... If Foucault's agitating for resistance... And that resistance is aimed at, like, either a new episteme or, like, changing the current one. How do we make sure that whatever we come to next is better? Yeah, sure, yeah. Like, there's no, like I said, there's no ethical prescriptions in here. Yeah, it'd be impossible right? to know. It, the, like, the concern is novelty for novelty's sake, mm-hmm. right? Like, is that the prescription? yeah. And like, and that's thinking about the end of man, and thinking about this as having been something that occurred a while ago, perhaps, makes me think that you know these types of analyses can only actually ever occur retroactively. Where it's how do you necessarily 
Yeah, yeah. which makes me suspicious. And there's like, I don't. So we're. The, I I honestly think that Baudrillard is a very good extension. Where Foucault leaves off, I think in in my mind Baudrillard really takes off, and I think that they really they really borrow from one another because Baudrillard says that how do we know that production in the case of like Marxism hasn't already disappeared, or he says of Foucault and forget Foucault, like how do we know that power hasn't disappeared or power isn't gone or whatever? But the point of you know without without really straying too far away. Is it possible to actually analyze something or take a Foucauldian perspective on something if even, you know, you and I are now considering that perhaps Foucault's discourse itself is, at the time of its conception, was it outdated? How do we possibly, like, try to take something from it now and apply it? I mean, it? it's particularly um, fraught with the order of things in the archaeology of knowledge because Foucault then moves on to a not different but distinct um distinctly new methodology afterwards yeah. right like he, she shifts to genealogy right yeah exactly and yeah, changes yeah. to that so yeah it's almost as if Foucault himself realized oh this isn't working or like this methodology is insufficient for the project that I want to do yeah so I, I I don't think genealogy is separate but I think it's definitely um distinct for sure yeah um i was gonna say something else oh uh roberto esposito says specifically uh foucault named a type of power just as it was ending okay yeah so uh i think like baudrillard takes takes um up the mantle from foucault in one direction or like you said like can be an extension a Foucault in one direction, but I think Esposito could be an extension like in another direction. Sure. Namely the biopolitical. I, I'd forgotten about that. The yeah. Esposito thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I think it's, it's not just the, it's not just the sense in Foucault that he is at the end of a specific era. I think other people have secondary commentators like Esposito have made that type of comment as well. Yeah. So, like, are we in the episteme of the biopolitical now? And, like, what would that mean? If, yeah. If it's, like, if we're not in representation and we're not in history, are we in... I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't even know what you would call it. Biopolitical uh, doesn't seem to fit right. Yeah, s- simulation for, like... Well, Bo- yeah, Baudrillard would say simulation, that's what, but, but then w- I, for, I don't... I think even later in his his career, he's like, no, we're that's done. Like, yeah. Why? Well, there's no way we can't. We can't. The other thing I'll be interested in too is like, like it seems like it's accelerating almost on Foucault's account, right? Like you go from like the Renaissance, just like I don't know, it's pretty long weeks, period. Yeah. Yeah. To like classical era, to like. The modern one, so like the modern one for him is like 150 years, maybe? Yeah, and then we could give it like, if I don't know what credence he's always the like postmodern so, term would have. Yeah, he's but, always so fuzzy with dates, right? <laughs> it's like, every time he says an actual date, I'm like, okay, I gotta note this down for like a reference point. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's understandable because he's talking about like 
macroscopic cultural trends. Yeah. So, I don't know. Um, do you have any final thoughts, maybe? I feel uh, we're, like we're just musing now. <laughs> it's because it, we have to. This yeah, is, no, I, it's not a bad thing. It, like, this guy's really, I really love reading him, but then it's like, but talking about it, it's No, it's, and like, it's like I challenge. said, I've been puzzling over these questions for, uh, for quite a while now, and they're hard. Yeah, it's so unbelievably dense, too, and like, someone listening, if anyone's listening, and they're like, <laughs> no, I found this quote, this is, you're wrong, and like... Like share it, but but, but we're like but see we can just so, say oh that was Foucault on one particular day yeah yeah the next day he said the opposite <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah but it, between every book he's he changed a little his subjectivity different. yeah 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 well, I don't I, I don't know I think that could do it I'm I'm I feel like someone could you know take a twelve week long course on this book alone personally it's it's oh yeah um. Because if you were to yeah. dig out all the different references that he, he uses from, like... So that, this is the other thing I was going to say, is... I don't know how much to engage with the history that he gives, because I have no way of determining how accurate it is. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. like, other than, I guess, you read secondary stuff that people have commented on his, his histories specifically and their accuracy... Yeah. Rather than like his methodology or his theory, yeah, right. But I mean, that required a lot of like primary document stuff, where you like go back and read these original texts, and uh, like understand the discourses they're situated within, in a way that, yeah, is yeah, very. I I read difficult. online on like a blog or something. I read something really interesting about. Some dude just shared this this thing, or he just typed it, or they just typed it. I don't know who the hell they were. But they wrote that, criticizing Foucault and the birth of the clinic, that the Egyptians, in many ways, performed many of the same operations that Foucault was saying gave you know birth to this kind of uh, medical-type gaze, right? Where everything fell under the okay. kind of gaze of the... the the speculum or, or, or the, the light and scalpel or whatever yeah. that, that looked into the recesses of the human body. Then this one person was like, you know, the Egyptians did that like long before, right? But for some reason, we don't think of that as being, hmm. or like Foucault kind of omits that. Right. And, or doesn't consider how different cultures engaged with the body in that way. Yeah. And like, to what extent does, is there like a kind of, reliance on, you know, if it didn't happen in Europe, it didn't, it didn't fucking happen, right? It right, did not right, exist. Right. Which is, you know, again, per, perhaps a petty criticism, but I thought, it, I thought it was interesting because, you know, when I first read this stuff, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this was, <laughs> they did this and it, it was clear and it became this after that and that, that was it. Right. So the critique that I hear there is, not specifically the history that he uses, but um, could there be other modes of like power relations and subject subjectifications in non-Western cultures? Yeah, exactly. Right? Because like he bases his whole theory of power and 
subjectification on these texts that he excavates from classical era in mainly like Spain, France, Germany, England. Then we found our resistance. You just step outside of those boundaries and now you're... Yeah, so, I, mean, I mean, the question is like how universal are the mechanisms and mechanics that he, he finds? Exactly. Or and are I, they just European? I feel like many, there are many instances where people don't question that. People are really prepared to say, yeah, this is applicable everywhere under every instance, even in like this context, like the West. Right. Like the, um, these ideas apply everywhere, which I'm like instantly suspicious about. Like, I don't know if Foucault's theory of panopticism can be applied as well to like plantations as it can to prisons. I don't know if these right. two systems or the, this, uh, this explanation can encapsulate both of, both of these phenomena. Yeah, I'm thinking, I guess, even <clears throat> more like like indigenous societies. Yeah, sure, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, example. like not even like where there isn't even like a contact with um, European discourse yet. Yeah. I don't know. The, the, it, I mean, part of part of his point, or like. Part of the reason you say like that's like a hard critique to make is like he was interested in the classical era in France. Yeah, and that's so like that's, it. that's what he worked on, and like it's what it can tell us about the present in France, or, yeah. like his contemporary period in France. So and see, you can't really fault the guy for doing the work that he wanted to do. No, and for my own part, it's not no, no, it's no, not no, a gripe with Foucault, but how some people take like, yeah, him up. Yeah, how right? how universalizable is it? Um, and they were like, yeah, I can do this anywhere. And uh, to which I'm sure Foucault would be like, get out of here. <laughs> you clown. Them. I was talking about uh, Linnaeus and uh, like Ricardo. Yeah, and I, don't, I don't know how, what he would claim, like whether those are actually the like universal mechanisms of power and how they work or not. I'm not sure. Yeah, he died. He died too young. He he would have addressed all that, that I'm sure. More... Yeah, but I don't know. I think God. I think that's good for now. I feel like we've gravitated far enough from this text. Yeah. Kind of gotten yeah. away from. We've its exploded pole. away from it. We've we've reached escape velocity. Right, exactly. We, we we've gotten out of the power relations. <laughs> well, if only briefly. Anyways, from if you made it this far. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Or uh, condolences. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you didn't turn it off at at the you know, toward the end of the first video, then uh <laughs> really I'm I'm impressed. But for those that did, thank you for listening and uh if you got any beef with us, you know you know how to leave it. Just try to make it constructive. Don't make me cry by by <laughs> saying mean things. Thanks for having me, Dave. Oh, you're welcome. See you later, Alex. Good luck with your thesis. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's a long process. <laughs> Anyways, take care, everyone. Bye.